You're listening to the Diabetic Running Podcast, helping people run their blood sugars one workout at a time. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to episode four of the Diabetic Running Podcast. I'm your host, John Fody. Today on the show, we have Alexis Hoffman. Alexis is a runner and type 1 diabetic from Portland, Oregon, and runs a blog called I Run on Insulin. Alexis has a truly inspiring and motivating story, and I think we dove into a lot of content that's going to be super helpful to anyone that's wanting to get into running or athletics in general, um, especially for those that are type 1 or type 2 diabetics. So without further ado, here's my interview with Alexis. Today on the show, we have Alexis Hopman, who runs a blog called I Run on Insulin. Um, and that's actually the first place that I was able to get in contact with her through after reading a lot of her different blog posts. Um, Alexis is a runner. Um, she's done multiple 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, um, competed um, competitively, actually, in karate for five years. Um, is a wife, a mom of a two-year-old, a type 1 diabetic of 25 years, um, diagnosed at 10, um, and an avid dog runner as well. Um, Alexis, thanks for coming on the show. appreciate you spending time out of your Sunday to meet with us. It's my pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And so first of all, where are you? Because people always want to know kind of where people are running from and kind of what that environment's looking like for them this time of year. Yes, of course. So I live in Portland, Oregon, and uh, I'm not a native Oregonian. Um, I came up here because my husband is from here. I'm originally from San Diego, and I was there for 30 years. So the differences between running in San Diego and Portland are stark (laughs) and important, and we can talk about that as we go on. Yeah, so I saw one of your races was Carlsbad half, right? Yes. Yeah, and so one one of my dream races is the Carlsbad 5000, and so... Um, you know, I always, I read about that and watched that and I, I need to get out there one of, one of those years. And so I, Beautiful I, I one. yeah, it seems like running in San Diego is quite nice. How, how's it different than running in Portland? It, you know, <laughs> the biggest change for me was just simply the gear. So developing my running, uh, abilities in San Diego, uh, my first half marathon was America's finest city. And then I did Carlsbad, you know, those are, one of those is in January and one of those is in August. And it, it wasn't all that different in terms of prepping, you know, T-shirt most days uh, yeah. for the January race. I had a, a long sleeve T-shirt, um, but still was wearing, you know, a running tight and my uh, um, my shoes and, you know, uh, really easy to just transition as the seasons go. You want to go running? get up and head out the door. That's how it is in San Diego. Yeah. Um, I'll never forget when we moved to Portland the first time I wanted to go running. I opened the door, saw pouring rain. I shut that door and I <laughs> sat back down on the couch and I said, that looks terrible. Yeah. Um, but it's all about getting the right gear. So now I've got a nice lightweight running jacket that's waterproof, um, one with lights on it actually for when I do my early morning runs and uh, warmer running tights, um, stuff that's really made for cold and wet and uh, wet environments. So it's all about being prepared. And I've, I, since the day I moved here four and a half years ago, I've been inspired by Portlanders ever since because they don't let any type of weather stop them. It's yeah. amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. I need to come visit and see the running scene there. I know like with Eugene and just with all the people that are traveling there for the, like the coastal trails, I know that it's awesome to run there. Yes. Um, I mean, you, you don't lack for scenery. And even if you're in an urban environment, the city's done such a great job of keeping greenways and park space that you're never far from being able to at least do, you know, a three mile loop somewhere, um, even if you were downtown. So it's really conducive to running, as was San Diego. San Diego's got miles and miles of coastline with beautiful trails. So yeah. both were easy cities to get out and go. Awesome. Well, so I have to ask, because everyone's always curious when I, we bring guests on the, the podcast and you know, people always ask me, I think it's interesting because I'm a late onset person. So people are always really curious how you get type one diabetes at 27. But, um, for you, <laughs> people are going to be curious as to, so when you got diagnosed, where you got diagnosed and then kind of how that transitioned for you. Cause you got diagnosed at 10. So, you know, essentially what did you do from 10 and, you know, into right. your teen years, into your twenties and, you know, now, you know, into being a mom. So how did that diagnosis evolve into athletics and get you into running and kind of tell us a little bit about the backstory there. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I got diabetes the same way that you did, John, which was just eating too much sugar, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That, that actually reminds me because I have a question at the end that's going to be um, about that. And we'll get to it later. Right. But yeah, you'll have an opportunity to rant about that. How many times bit. have we had to give that speech and that spiel? It's it's uh, mind numbing at times, right? Yeah. It, it's so um, funny. Everyone I talk to, it's, it's kind of that same story. You know, they, they'll be eating like, you know, some candy because they're low and they're getting mm-hmm. looks from coworkers or family like, Yes. Should, you, should you be eating that? You know, can you eat that? Are you allowed to eat that? You know, like I need to show you a hall pass or something. Yeah. Like it's it's totally maddening. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh goodness, we could talk. We could do a whole podcast just on the stuff people say, right? Yeah, that's a great <laughs> idea. Actually, <laughs> hey, hey, write that one down. Yeah. Uh, well, so my diagnosis in some strange ways was actually one of the best case scenarios. Um, I was 10 years old and I, though I grew up in San Diego, my, um, grandparents, my mom's parents lived in Minnesota and we would go every Christmas to visit them. And the reason they lived in Minnesota is because my grandfather, when I knew him was retired, but had spent his career as an endocrinologist at the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> so it doesn't get any more baller than Mayo Clinic endocrinologist in terms yeah. of diabetes care. Wow. Um, so a truly, truly a blessing. And I had all the typical symptoms that kids show when they're developing type 1 diabetes, which is frequent urination, um, just insatiable thirst. You know, I'd come in from playing in the snow with my sisters and I would just chug a pitcher of water and still be thirsty. Yeah. Uh, I was losing weight at a time when a child should be sort of filling out and growing up and taller and stronger. So, um, my parents were already concerned, but a little bit clueless. Um, unfortunately that year they had been going through a divorce as well. So, uh, my dad was a physician, but, um, uh, he was a surgeon and he was kind of removed from the situation at that time. So just my mom was kind of just terrified and confused and, my grandpa, thank goodness, he saw my symptoms. It was very obvious in that Christmas break setting because we'd go outside. You got to put on this snow gear in Minnesota, yeah. and I'd be back in five minutes later because I had to pee. Um, it had, then, that had to have been so weird for him, just being so in- integrated with it, and then having to see his granddaughter do that. He said it was just totally surreal because he knew in in uh, honestly in 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 an hour or two of us being there, yeah. and it was Christmas time. Um, so we went on the morning of the 24th, so Christmas Eve day, yeah. down to the Mayo Clinic, and my grandpa had said we need to get a fasting. And I know now that the number that came up on the finger stick was 252, Yeah. but I couldn't remember it um, at the time. I know that now because I have the, the report from that visit. My mom had saved it all these years. Oh, wow. And I just remember how wonderful my grandfather was because he looked down at the meter, and he didn't balk. He didn't make a face. He didn't... Um, scare me in any way. He knew that I, I was, uh, already scared just being at the doctor and having to get a finger stick. And he said two fifty two, Okay. And he just kind of nodded his head. And then, um, my mom and him disappeared and I was left with a nurse for a while. Mm. Uh, and I distinctly remember they put on a Disney movie. It was, um, the Robin Hood cartoon with the forest animals. Yeah. And I remember that when the movie ended and they still weren't back, that something really wrong was going on. (laughs) And I was like, oh, this is something serious because I've watched an entire Disney movie and my mom and grandpa still aren't back. So, um, but I had amazing care in those early days. I, I was released right away back to my grandpa's house with my family. A lot of children are hospitalized or that's what gets them to diagnosis. Yeah. And so I was truly blessed to just say, you know, you're with uh, his, his last name was McConaughey. You're with Dr. McConaughey. You are good to go home. So those early days and even those early years, like a lot of kids, I had tons of parent supervision. Um, you know, my dad was a doctor. He wasn't an endo, but he was familiar with syringes and medicines. And um, I just had a, a, a huge amount of support um, and really good control as a young child. Um, I was lucky enough to attend a private school. So I had access to the school nurse. I had all these kind of privileges that now as an adult, when I look back at being successful as a child with diabetes, I realize all the things I had in my corner, you know, um, not everybody has that when they're diagnosed. So my challenges started like they do for a lot of people as a teenager. Um, I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to be part of it. I didn't like being what I felt was perceived as the sick kid. Um, teenagers never want to be different than anyone else. So going to my locker to get out a syringe and take insulin at lunchtime was not something I was interested in. 
And unfortunately, those bad habits, they caught up with me after a few years. And when I was 18, I was uh, sent to the hospital emergency room for diabetic ketoacidosis. Um, so for any listeners that, that don't know, that's just a buildup of acid in the bloodstream due to chronic high blood sugars. And it's, it's life threatening. And, um, I was so glad that I got good care and, and got to the hospital in time cause I was taken care of. And it was honestly, John, the best thing that's ever happened to me because really? uh, it really was, yeah. it was horrible to go through. But from that hospital bed, my 18 year old self, um, realized that if I let this disease control me, then, well, as an 18-year-old, certain things were important to me. I was like, I can't go to prom. <laughs> I can't, I can't um, you know, go to college in the fall like I want to if I'm uh-huh. stuck in a hospital bed. I can't travel like I've always wanted to. I can't have a boyfriend. can't, you know, do any of these things that I had, had dreamed my life would look like um, from a hospital bed. And so there was that kind of aha moment from the hospital room, and I really started to get it together. But it was truly about six months later when I went off to college in Los Angeles um, that I really started to get involved in my diabetes care. And so looking back, I think about, well, what changed um, by going to college? And the biggest thing was I had a new group of friends, so I could just be super upfront. I could make a choice with them to talk to them about diabetes right away instead of trying to hide it like high school. And, um, I had a new endocrinologist, um, my endo in San Diego had helped me find someone in LA that was super caring, thoughtful, and really helpful for someone in my age group. Um, I had a roommate who showed me how to use the gym. I know that sounds funny, but like I was totally scared of the gym and she showed me how to use the weight machines and, uh, you know, the stair stepper and all that kind of stuff. And I got into exercise And, um, I just really made a lot of, uh, lifestyle changes as I look back on that, that time in my life. And I think just being away from kind of a stressful home environment, um, you know, my, my home had a lot of challenges growing up that gave me the, the ability to not only understand that taking care of my diabetes was going to give me the best opportunity for freedom, but also the tools to actually follow through on that idea. Yeah. And that's when I got into fitness and advocacy and being involved with the ADA, the American Diabetes Association, and from there, um, so moved how into old were you? How old were you in that time? That was my eighteen to twenty-two range. Okay, so that's when I really learned how to do um, the things that I needed to take care of myself. And actually, in college is where I got into karate. Mm-hmm. So, how did you when when you first started working out? I know, like maybe it was eighteen to twenty-two. Like, what were the like the barriers for working out on mm-hmm. insulin and diabetes initially, like what did you, how did you cope with, you know, those mm-hmm. initial few workouts, like the stress of like, okay, should I be on insulin? Should I have no active insulin? You know? Yeah, it was, it was really hard cause I was flying a little bit blind. So now, you know, I'm looking over to my left now and I see my pump control or my CGM, which goes directly to my phone. Like I've got crazy tools now, right? Yeah, <laughs> like I've got all the latest. <laughs> I think that's my same setup that I'm looking at right now. So perfect. Perfect. Yes. We have this amazing hardware now that helps keep us, um, together. And at the time I was on MDI, multiple daily injections and a meter, just like most people were, this was, would have been in the early 2000s. Yeah. So 2001, 2005. And, um, I, I have always been kind of a, um, a packer and a planner and a, you know, a person that thinks through steps probably because I had diabetes. I mean, I think that helps kind of breed our personalities a bit, Oh yeah. but I would just, um, I would take a juice with me or something to the gym. And when I finally got in better control, so this is around that time, I was lucky because I was, I, and still am very hypo aware. So I, I knew when my blood sugar was starting to drop, um, and I would go over to my gym bag and sometimes check, or if I really felt like I was dropping, um, you know, I would, I would go grab that juice right off the bat. Um, so I would, I would come to the gym prepared, but looking back, you know, we always look back and think about some of the decisions we made. I mean, I didn't discriminate between, you know, working out before a meal, after a meal, afternoon, early morning, late the night. So I was probably dealing with a lot of different insulin on board scenarios and food scenarios in the background that I didn't even understand. Mm -hmm. So I relied on finger sticks before a workout. I would do one finger stick and just make sure I was in a safe range and then I would have at it. And um, at the time, what was a safe range for you, do you think? 
At the time, I, I've always preferred for cardio to be running higher. I liked to be 120 and above yeah. for weight. Um, I, that was uh, interestingly, you know, some of the stuff that we know as people with diabetes, like we've known for a long time, we just didn't know the science behind it. I noticed right yeah. away that weightlifting didn't produce the same drop in blood sugar for me that cardio did, um, but that both had effects on my blood sugar hours later. Um, so I would, when I was lifting weights, I would, I would be okay with, you know, between 80 to 120 or so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah it sounds very similar to me. I, I, I always ask that because I see a lot of people that, you know, depending on kind of where they're at with their diabetes, they tend to want to start running at like 160, 170. And for, mm-hmm. for me, that's always been just a little high. Cause I feel like, you me know, too. cause I know I'm going to drop, you know, cause I, it's hard for me to maintain a 170 and not also drop to 80 by the end of a run. You yeah. Know what I mean? Cause it's, it's probably going to, I call it a shallow high. I don't know what other people call it, but I know it's not going to sit there for long. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and actually that's interesting that that's how that functions for you. I, I actually, for me, if I started a run at 160, I am definitely a person that, and we can talk about this more later, but th- that I, I'm worried about going high at that point from all the glucose that I'm oh. using to yeah. go running. So for me, if I started at 160, if I was going on a short run, I might even take a half unit or something to try and get that down by the end of it. But mm-hmm. it's a tricky balance, right? Because because what if you do drop, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that's why getting a CGM for me was like night and day difference in oh. confidence when I stepped out for a run, you know? Tell um, me about it. Yeah. I ran America's Finest City with no CGM. And I finished that race with a blood sugar so high that the meter couldn't read it. I was over 500. Oh, wow. And then a year later, I did the Carlsbad half marathon with the CGM, and I finished at, I think, 120, 119. I mean, it was truly night and day, as you just said. I mean, it's it's the single most important tool for diabetes management that we've seen in our lifetimes, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm super fortunate with, you know, my healthcare that they just sent it to me, you know, so it was, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and being yeah. a newly diagnosed, it was kind of clutch to have, you know, that immediately. Cause I really didn't have the background of knowing like what the swings meant and being able to read that to me, it just translated into a bunch of anxiety about my blood sugar all the time. And so having a CGM was just the confidence I needed. So it's um, huge. And I, <laughs> I should full disclosure here. So my, my day job outside of blogging, I do work for a CGM company. Um, oh, wow. but being that I'm a patient myself, um, I feel like I can at least provide that unbiased perspective. So. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Um, and so you're 22, you're starting to work out. Um, at what point did that transition into running and or endurance sports? Or I know you, you kind of, you did five years of karate. And so talk to us about that and maybe how that evolved into running. Yeah. I mean, the bulk of my, my 18 to 22 years running was something I did to get the job done. You know, it was, I need to get some cardio in or I want to get some cardio in. So I would never do really more than about three miles or so. That was kind of my max in college. Um, and it would be around the track or around my college campus, that kind of thing. Part of that was because I, I became so enamored with karate. So I, I took this karate class. Um, I went to Occidental College. It's a tiny liberal arts school in East LA. And the guy from the mailroom was the teacher. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, this will be you know, a credit. I've always sort of been interested in martial arts, whatever. When this kind of short, funny man from the mailroom would get in that karate uniform and perform one of the katas, which is just the patterns that you have to memorize for your belt tests, you were just transformed. I mean, he was just beautiful to watch. I mean, this guy would just become what I thought in my, you know, 18 year old mind, like just a ninja, just a total badass. <laughs> like the guy from the mailroom can do all that. Holy cow. And he was like this middle-aged father of three, nicest guy you've ever met, but he just had been this, um, incredible student of what I came to find out was a, a, a grandmaster of, of the discipline. So Takiyuri Kubota, um, has is the only living person right now to have his own division of Shotokan um, being taught. So his division of Shotokan, which he invented, is called Gosok Ryu. Shotokan Karate is kind of an umbrella name for what is really known to most people as kind of the general every everyday karate, like the stuff you see in movies and the stuff you kind of hear about colloquially. Mm-hmm. Goso Kryu is just a division of that. So there are some moves and some patterns that are proprietary to that division. But for all intents and purposes, it's it's Shotokan karate. Um, 
And that's why this guy from the mailroom was so amazing because he had studied under this, this gentleman, Takubota, who is a legend in his field. And I took that first class and I was hooked. I, I loved um, the empowerment feeling from it, you know, just especially as a woman feeling a little bit safer, knowing some self-defense moves. Um, I loved that it combines strength and cardio. I love that it engaged your mind, having to memorize these very complex patterns. Um, I loved getting in the ring. We would do kumite or fighting, you know, for to prepare for competitions. Um, it just kind of sparked this this uh, joy in me that like I didn't know was there because I I actually had not been very good at sports in high school. I played some volleyball, but was never very good. Part of that, looking back, was because my diabetes was in such poor control at the time leading up to that DKA um, diagnosis. But also, I think that I was just sort of meant for these solo sports and and not necessarily the team environment or having to get a ball to some location. <laughs> yeah. And so, so getting started yeah. with karate, how did you – like I know kind of little about karate, but – um, going into like a session or a workout, how did you prep your diabetes and what was like that nutrition like for you? Yeah, the nutrition was, um, tricky at first to understand because I didn't know the cadence of the classes. So the classes where we'd practice fighting skills were super cardio intensive. You would just, you know, sweat through your uniform, that kind of class. And, uh, they were about an hour long each hour to an hour and a half. But the days we did pattern work was much more, uh, much calmer and much more focused on form and repeating movements. So on, on fight nights, as I would call them in college, um, I would have an apple, um, with some peanut butter beforehand. Cause I found that that helped elevate my blood sugar, but not too much and kind of kept me steady and I wouldn't bolus for it. Um, I would power through that, that class and usually end up on the right side of the, of the meter. Um, uh, some of the most frustrating karate classes were when I was in the middle of doing patterns and really kind of focused on the moment. And then you feel yourself getting low and have to stop and kind of break that concentration and go right. treat the low. But, um, yeah, I would do snacks on, on the nights that we were practicing fighting. And then on pattern nights, I would usually just check blood sugar before and then head in to class. Cause I didn't really need a lot of, um, energy for getting into not a, I don't mean personal energy, but food energy for going through those classes. So that one, those were easier to plan for. Yeah. And I did, I did karate for five years. I loved it. Um, I did it for a, a year after graduating. Um, but like a lot of sports that take a lot of time and dedication and specific practice times, it was not super practical when I really dove into my career because I started traveling. Um, I moved from LA back to San Diego, which meant switching dojos. Um, just had a lot of those kind of life things start getting in the way. And, um, so instead, um, when I, especially when I started traveling a lot for work, I, I found myself running more and more because running the, one of the most wonderful things about it, as you know, John, is that you can do it almost anywhere. Um, oh, yeah. so it's, it's so portable and, and fantastic in that way. And I would say around age 22, 23, 24 is when I started really getting into running and making that kind of my primary form of exercise. So um, when you got into it, were you, so you were only running for yourself? Did you have any kind of races on the calendar that you maybe were going to look at training for or? Not until I was 23 and my roommate at the time, she wanted to do a tough mudder race, one of those mud races. Yeah. And I thought that looks cool. Like, you know, it looks like a kind of gross, messy, good time. Like I, I can do that. And I remember being surprised after that race because it was only a 5K and it was so, so hard. And the reason it was so hard <laughs> is because there, was a <laughs> because there was a bunch of mud. No, just kidding. It was so hard because, yes, the mud was a complication, but the bigger challenge was that there were hills. And I had been training on flat surfaces. So yeah. I'd maybe done four or five miles up to that point, but only on flat surfaces. And I think that Tough Mudder race really showed me that elevation – uh, heat. It was a later morning race. It was a hot day. That, that was the race where I was really like, okay, you got to plan for the activity. Like running is not just running. Running hills is very different than, uh, running flat. Running on a, a hot day is going to take different, um, tools and different things than a cold day or a cool day. That was a race that kind of opened my eyes to being prepared, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I and, run in Southern I Alabama, being, so I have no access to hills. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but I have plenty of access to hot and humid days. So, um, do you run in the mornings or in the evenings usually? Uh, so the army makes me run in the morning. And so I've been, I run mostly in the morning and then usually in the <laughs> afternoons, I'll, that's when I'll hop on the treadmill and do like a treadmill workout. Um, only yeah. because a lot of days, especially even through the fall, a lot of days it's too hot to run here in the afternoon. Um, yeah. I'd imagine. Yeah. <laughs> what do you, I mean, what do you find that the heat and running does to your blood sugars? Cause for me, that's like a recipe to just start climbing. Oh, so for me, the the harder I can work is the more it'll pull my blood sugar down if I have active insulin. So, um, if I'm stepping out for a run and I have zero active insulin, like my pump says zero active insulin, I'll know that there's not a lot I can do to go low and I'm not really going to go high. So yeah. like up to this point, I think, you know, I can wake up at five in the morning and be running by six, um, have taken my pump off 20 minutes prior and I could run for six or seven miles. And by the time I'll get done, I might've dropped like five or 10 points or something like that. But, um, Oh wow. And you take yeah. your pump off and disconnect completely. Yeah. Up to, up to about an hour. Um, okay. since I got diagnosed, I still haven't breached beyond that, you know, that hour threshold. And so, um, mm -hmm. yeah, if you have any recommendations or advice on, kind of what to do after that first hour. That'd be great. I've got a, a half marathon here in two weeks and I haven't run that far since I got diagnosed. And so <laughs> I really don't know, like, you know, should I run that far and then throw my pump on and eat a banana and then bolus for it and then continue on? Or right. should I pull right. out my old Lantus pen and give myself, you know, half a day's dose of that? Oh, that's a, that's an option as well. I've done that before run on Lantus to just have the background insulin and trying not to mess with the pump. I did that for, I think, Carlsbad Half Marathon. Yeah. Um, and that that does work. I mean, that's one option is to have Lantus in the background. And then you can kind of eat more when you want to because you do have active insulin just kind of hanging out. Mm -hmm. My other my, – my go-to for half marathons with my pump is I usually um, try and – well – that's the thing too, is I always try and start from a, a really reasonable blood sugar, you know, 100, 120, something like that. But yeah. I find race days, I wake up a little anxious and excited and then yeah. an elevated blood sugar, right? So you like start from this disadvantage of having a bit of a higher blood sugar. But yeah. I've been a person that routinely on half marathons, I take you about two hours, give or take. And for the first half of the race, I turn my pump down 50, 60, sometimes 70%, depending on the blood sugar I'm starting with. Oh, so you but leave it on? I leave it on. Oh, and you just on. have it, it, like you you put it in like a flip belt or a pocket or clip it on? Exactly, or? exactly. I've used spy belts and then I've used um, my, my favorite product that I to have for running is um, a belt from this woman named Donna. I can't remember her last name, but her brand is called Tally Gear, T-A-L-L-Y Gear. And she developed these belts that are, they Velcro, so they're just a stretchy band, and then they Velcro in the back, so you can wear them under or over your clothes, as tight or as loose as you want them. And they have three pockets that are Velcroed in the front, but the middle one you can get with a clear window. So before my CGM went to my phone, and even still sometimes, I would put the receiver in the clear window facing me, like upside down, so that when I was running, I could just flip the belt up, click the button, and see my blood sugar instantly. And then I would put my PDM in the other pocket and then glucose in the third pocket. So um, I use goo when I'm running for my go-to. Yeah, it's like the uh, trifecta. It is. It's the trifecta. <laughs> yeah. I love that belt. That belt's gotten me through almost all of my long runs. So it's it's great. Really great. But yeah, I leave the pump going. And then I sometimes turn it back up to full speed for the last half hour. Because again, I'm a person that I find I rebound high right after the race for a few hours. Mm -hmm. And then that whole night, I'm just like dropping my basal rate because I'm going to go low the entire night and probably yeah. the next day. And so what is your, what's your logic for leaving the pump on as opposed to just bringing it off and then maybe somehow getting access to it halfway through the race or something like that? It, do you feel like you need that basal rate for that first hour before, you know, like by, by the time you're eating, you know? I do. I feel like I need it. And I feel like my body cannot actively and properly process glucose coming in or being released ex endogenously yeah. if I don't have a little insulin going. Like mm -hmm. to me, I, I actually get a little, this is just, this is a personal, not a, this is how I feel, not a comment on what we should do, but mm -hmm. I get nervous with, with no insulin going. Like yeah. even if it's just a, a, the point, you know, just a 10% of my basal rate running in the background, I would prefer that rather than turning my, my pump off completely. Cause mm -hmm. I feel like my body's supposed to have something, yeah. something in the back 
<laughs> yeah, I asked because it's funny how many, you know, different ideologies there are out there. You know, I, you know, disclaimer, of course, you know, you should always consult with your doctor before changing their insulin regimen. Yes. But I think a lot of people, you know, as a, you know, as our, we're all mathematicians and doctors in our own way for our own diabetes. Yes. And so you kind of have to play with it. And it's funny how many people try and, you know, do successfully all these different options and methods, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. You got to, I mean, your diabetes may vary, right? It's it, everybody has to do what works for them. Yeah. So, and so what, how, how, what's your current running insulin regimen look like? So I, it was funny you mentioned the hour threshold earlier. If I'm running for more than an hour, which I do really only once a week right now. So I have a, a two year old as we talked about before. Yeah. Um, and so there's some early mornings already, but, um, at least once a week, I, I like to get out for a long run that's over an hour. And, um, at that time I will turn my pump down 50% and I'll bring the controller with me and I try and do it before I've eaten anything. So first thing in the morning, um, which, you know, back to the gear, that means light up jackets, reflective jackets, dog collar with the lights on it. My dog looks like she's going to a, a rave <laughs> when we go out running early, yeah. <laughs> um, but you can spot us from a mile away and, um, yeah, 50% drop in my basal rate if I'm going for more than an hour. Um, if I'm going for less than, um, less than an hour. So, you know, on Fridays I try and just do two to three miles to just, um, get a run in, you know, towards the end of the week. Um, you might be surprised to hear this, but I actually don't turn my pump down at all. So I just, it, as long as my blood sugar is in a normal range in the morning, um, mm -hmm. uh, for me, that's 80 to 140. I say I wouldn't change anything maybe 150. Um, I just, I don't turn the pump down at all. Um, unless I started low, if I was under 70, um, not only do I have to eat something before I can go out running, but I'll probably also turn my pump down a little bit, but a 30 minute run, I prefer to have all my insulin on board. And I found for me that actually works the best in terms of keeping me in range throughout the run and after. Yeah. Have you ever, so have you ever run without your pump on and felt like a noticeable energy difference or do you think it's like just more so mental? I think it's mental. I think yeah. it's mental. I wear the Omnipod. So, you know, the, the pod is actually stuck to your body. Oh yeah. Uh, so then you could leave the controller behind, but you're going to have background insulin running unless you set it to, to drop off beforehand. Oh yeah. So, you, so I mean, regardless, you're essentially taking your insulin with your, whether or not, you know, you right. decide to use it. Yeah. For me, right, I think right. it's too easy because I'm on, you know, like the mini med, so I could just pop it off and it's, it's right one there. less thing. Yeah. It's one less thing I've got to <laughs> keep on me while I'm running. So yeah, how is that running with the mini med? Like, do you tuck it, it like inside your it. shorts, or like how do you keep it from flying off all I've the time? I've never, I don't know, I've never done it. That's why I'm super curious as to. <laughs> I always ask other people, and I think most people, you know, yeah. use like a foot belt or um, yep. some sort of like waist band um, that they kind of tuck it into. Um, I think women, women are a little luckier. They can wear tighter clothing and they can, you know, either shove it into their pants or like a, their tights. side bra or something, you know, but yeah. I'm not so lucky. So I know. Well, um, unless you get on the tights bandwagon. Yeah. So I have a, a recommendation for you, which is if you're going to do, if you think, if you're thinking about taking your pump on this next long run, mm -hmm. I would do a couple practice runs wearing the pump uh, before, because I found that if on race day, if I change anything about weight, or what's in my pockets and stuff. I'm super distracted by it. Yeah. It throws um, like, it throws your, like your cadence yeah. off. Yeah. yeah, totally. So you might just do like a practice run wearing your pump or holding it or try, try a couple setups or something. Yeah. I need, my anxiety has stopped me from running farther than like, I think I'd say about like seven, seven and a half miles since I got diagnosed. Yeah. And cause I, I really just didn't know, you know, what that, you know, metabolic, point was going to feel like, you know, when I got there. And so I was always worried, you know, like when I run out of glycogen, what's going right. to happen if I try and eat in the middle of a run without bolusing, right. you know, and I'm just like, been super nervous about that. So, um, totally get it. yeah, it's nice it's to hear that you're so confident about it. I'm gonna have to try it now. No, it's, it's totally doable. I mean, that, that's the thing. And I found with those races with my half marathons, I wouldn't eat for the first hour. And then about that hour mark, when I'm flipping my pump back onto full steam ahead, back to hundred percent, um, that's the time I might have, you know, a half a banana or, uh, a pack of goo, um, something like that, that they're, you know, whatever they're handing out at the races is okay too. something around 15, no more than 20 grams of carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. Um, because the insulin that's now working hundred percent in the background and the running, it's going to even itself out. And that's kind of a, a good way for me in the past to end up at a good number. Um, but it, it is tricky. And I think, 
part of what eases that anxiety for both of us is our CGMs, you know, showing us which way oh, we're yeah. trending. So um, how, how does yeah, that play ahead. into diet and nutrition for like pre-run, during run, post-run? Mm -hmm. Like, what are you eating? <laughs> when are you eating? When are you bolusing yes. with it? When are you not bolusing with it? Talk to us a little I'm bit about a, that. I'm a big believer in do not change anything for race day. So look back at the way that you've been training and, and try and replicate that as much as possible. If that means that you have a glass of red wine the night before and, <laughs> and half eggs the morning of, because that's yeah. what you did on your last training run, then by all means, do it. Do not try a new breakfast on race day. Don't try a new bolus regimen. Do whatever it is you did on your longest run or your last three practice runs. Um, I'm a little bit weird in that I, so because mentally I would get anxiety about um, being worried if I could actually run that far and finish the race. So most people training for halves don't push themselves past, I'd say 10 miles mm -hmm. on their training runs. I know people who do even less, seven or eight, and then they go and they do 13 on the race day. I would, I would actually do practice runs up to 12 miles because I was like, I needed to know I could do yeah, it. Yeah, like anyone can walk an extra mile if you end up blowing right, up at mile 12. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I, that would be my advice for people is replicate what's been working for you on the training run. So for me, that meant um, a very normal um, – we tend to eat relatively low carb in my house, but a normal dinner the night before, I don't carb load. I don't take down a plate of pasta. Um, I might have roasted chicken and squash or roasted chicken with Caesar salad and yeah. some asparagus. And then the morning of, my favorite breakfast is two eggs and a piece of toast with coffee. I always have coffee before my run, yeah. um, even on those early morning ones. And doing everything as normal as possible um, the day of the race, you know, so I'm not introducing new monkey wrenches. And inevitably, like I would say of the three halves I've done, two out of three of those, I started those with terrible blood sugars the morning of just due to anxiety. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that people don't calculate in for race days is transit time. So, you know, if I'm training, I can have my eggs and then head out the door and go on my long run. On half marathon day, I might have to have my eggs at home, get in the car, drive a half hour to the race end, get picked up by a bus, get taken back to the race start. So you have to factor that in. So that might mean packing a hard-boiled egg with you or um, something with very little carbohydrate in it, but that can keep you full right up until the start line so that you right. don't stand on an empty tank. It's challenging. And so when you step out for a race, what exactly do you have on you? And mm -hmm. like what's in your Omnipod? What kind of food do you have on you? Everything. Yeah. So um, always start with an Omnipod that, that I've been wearing for uh, a day at least. I, I would never put a new pod on the morning of. Same mm -hmm. as for tube pump, wouldn't change the infusion site. And the yeah. same for my um, CGM, for my Dexcom. So I, I want a sensor that I've been wearing for a few days, but not wearing the full week. Um, and if that means scrapping two of those earlier just to get the right timing down for a race day, I'll do it. Just take a hit on the materials, which is never fun, but um, that's important to me. And then I always have three packets of goo. I only like one flavor. Damn it. I only like the chocolate outrage. I chocolate outrage. That is, I was, I wanted to say it before you said it so that you would know that oh, I wasn't like so retroactively funny. agreeing with you, but that's the only flavor I've been able to like consistently manage to eat, you know, totally a hundred percent agree with you. It's yeah, like, I buy them on Amazon in bulk. Offensive. Yeah. I buy them on Amazon too. Exactly. It's the <laughs> least offensive imitation flavor I it can is. think of. It, to me, it tastes straight like regular chocolate fudge. Like, exactly. Um, exactly. So I, I keep three of those and why do I keep three of them? Because you don't, and any, if you're on any sort of sponsored race that you paid for, there is going to be so much food and so much carbohydrate there that you, run the risk of ending up high, not low. Mm -hmm. um, three is good for if you're on a, you know, a long stretch between water stations or something like that in case um, you're feeling scared, like your blood sugar is really dropping and you don't want just one, you want to have two and then you've always got another backup. Um, but you don't need, I don't think personally that you need more than three. Some, some people would probably disagree with that. They want more energy, but that's, um, my belt is loaded up with my um, PDM, three packets of goo and then my CGM in the clear window in the front part of the belt where I can just glance at it quickly. Mm -hmm. And so when do you, so you have all that When is like for, let's say if you were to run a half marathon tomorrow, when would you start eating? Um, and would you do anything with your Omnipod when you eat? Oh, gotcha. If I'm starting from a, a super reasonable blood sugar, 80 to 150, then I would have eggs for breakfast and um, not bolus for them. And I would be okay as long as my blood sugar was under probably 200. 
before race time. If it was between 150 and 200, um, I probably wouldn't turn my pump down 50%. I'd probably turn it down only 30% to start Mm -hmm. and then try and get that blood sugar to come down to a more normal range for a while. And clicking into my CGM probably every 15 to 20 minutes or so during my run. Um, sometimes I would just, so if I was feeling kind of, um, overly anxious about my blood sugar or worried about something or it wasn't doing what I wanted it to, I would make myself only check the CGM every mile because they mm-hmm. always have the mile markers. Yeah. And that way I didn't obsess too much. I'd be like, all right, you know what? You just ate 18 grams of carbohydrate. I know you saw the arrow going down, but let's go another mile and then we'll check it. Then you've got to give that sugar time to work so yeah. you don't eat. Yeah. Um, it seems like it'd be so easy to obsess over it and check over and over again, or just hold it in your hand and just stare at it while you're running. <laughs> It totally is. And I think yeah. there's a real tendency to over overeat on these races because you do get scared. You worry about going low. If you see that arrow start to turn down, your first instinct is to like, you know, have 15 shot blocks and two packets of goo. And next thing you know, your blood sugar is going to be 300 while you're trying yeah. to expel all that energy. So, so when you, when you're in that scenario and you feel like that the CGM might be indicating that you're dropping, do you slow down or do you hold pace? I no, I hold pace, but, um, I might slow down for a minute to turn my pump down more. So let's yeah. say I only had it down 50%. I'll drop it down to 80% less insulin, um, and see if that fixes it. If I'm obviously, if I'm a bit at 70 and the arrow is pointing down, I'm going to have some goo while I turn the pump down. So, um, I slow down my running just for those few moments while I'm making adjustments. And then I get right back, right back into my pace and just yeah. forge ahead. So you said that you guys are on like a lower carb household and I I think I probably am about the same. Like, I don't think we claim to be low carb. We just don't eat a lot of like breads and pastas and stuff. We tend to just eat vegetables and meats. And, you know, I think a common meal for me would probably be between like maybe 30 and 40 grams of carbs at most. Um, I think some dietitians that I've met would be like, Oh, you need to eat exactly 65 every time. And it just seems unreasonable, you know, (laughs) but so what would you say your, your week life? My question for dietitians is always like, why? Tell me why. Give me some compelling evidence as to why I need to eat that many carbohydrates. And I'm down to do it. But I I don't often find that there's really solid studies to back up that recommendation for more carbohydrates. And I I think from my understanding, it was always like they didn't want you to start tapping into your muscle mass. You know, I think the fear is like that. Yeah, you're going to be so low carb that you're all of a sudden going to start burning your muscle like you're, you know, like on the ketone diet or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, even Which, though that's so far from yeah, reality, you're possibly. Forty grams of carbohydrates per meal. You're at 100 to 120 per day. That yeah. is far from keto. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, um, you, would you say that's sorry, consistent with your week, though? Like, yeah, I mean, splurge meals on the weekend. I'm assuming, or are you guys a, a clean, yeah, clean yeah. eaters only? We, no, we, we, we definitely splurge. I'm married to a physician assistant, which is so wonderful for context, you know, having someone that like not only understands diabetes, but like respects the work that it takes to control it well is yeah. huge. Um, so no, we, we definitely, I, I'm lucky to have a partner that, that is super supportive of how I eat. And, um, it is funny when I'm traveling for work, sometimes I'll call my husband and, and I'll be like, Hey, what'd you make for dinner tonight? I'd be like, Oh, pizza, <laughs> yeah. pasta, you Perfect. know? So I know that he, he makes some of those choices to support my, my food habits, but it's, it's really similar to what you said about 30 to 40 grams of carbohydrate in a meal is, is kind of my, where I like to keep my max. Um, when I was pregnant with my son, um, you know, you, you have to keep non-diabetic levels of blood sugar, um, that's the, the best thing you can do to prevent birth defects, complications, uh, heavy birth weight, all, a whole host of issues. And so it's, it's just that time, it's a time in your life where you have to buckle down and just dedicate. And, um, after I had my son, I think I ate every carbohydrate that Portland had to offer. <laughs> that's awesome. Pizza, pasta, mac and cheese, beer. I mean, you name it. I was eating it. I was just so excited to not have that like extreme, you know, level of control going on anymore. So speaking of cheat meals, that was, that was a couple weeks of cheat meals. I think every single one for a while after I had my child. Hey, you got (laughs) to splurge at some point, you know, you have to, you have to, especially having that narrow of a focus, you know, um, or a narrow, not narrow of a focus, but a um, narrow of an allowance for so long. It was, it was definitely hard. Yeah. 
So when you go to run, what kind of running gear have you learned to rely on that's helped you out a lot with managing diabetes, you know, and, and, and improving your training? Um, you know, yeah. things like bags, belts, you know, handhelds, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I already mentioned my favorite belt, which is from Tally Gear. Um, I love that clear window. I love that you can put something in there that you could see. Um, and then there's um, a a workout apparel company called Senita Athletics, S-E-N-I-T-A, Senita. What I love about that company is they all their running tights have big pockets on the side. Yeah. So they're tights and they're they're, you know, comfortable and and weatherproof and all that kind of thing. But you can put your Omnipod PDM or your pump um right in one of those pockets, your CGM or your phone in the other pocket and still have some room left over for a goo in one of their tiny kind of hidden pockets. Um those are by far and away my favorite um workout pants. Um, that I found that's, that's some good gear. Yeah. And then, um, what about a watch? I, Do you run with a watch? I don't because, um, if I, if I need to time something, it's either on my pump CGM or my phone, depending on what I'm carrying that day. Yeah. I did wear watches when I ran my half marathons because I was more interested in knowing my times and how long, yeah. um, what I use now is map my run. Mm-hmm. Um, so because my CGM, I wear a Dexcom goes directly to my phone. I can just leave the receiver. I don't need to use the the Dexcom receiver. I oh, can yeah. just get the G five is incredible. It's incredible. It's yeah. so awesome. Um, so I have my G five fired up on my phone. So I've got my blood sugars right there. Um, and then I use map my run. Um, map my run is great because I don't know if you've used it, but it tells you your mileage. So every time you hit a mile, it tells you that, okay, number of miles and then your um, pace, how fast you've been going. So, yeah. um, it's funny when I, when I take the dog with me, the first few miles are always like longer because she has to stop and do her business every like yeah. few minutes. And then the last two or three miles are always just like, I'm like, wow, I'm really picking up the pace here. It's because my dog is not stopping to pee anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like See, very I'm, helpful. I'm bad about just letting my dog off the leash and I'll control him with his, mm-hmm. he has a shot collar, but I can also buzz him or beep him and <laughs> we'll run through the park and I'll just let him stop and I just carry on. Dude, but I'm, yeah. I'm really bad about like obsessing over my pace. So like I have a, I target pace and i'll hold that with my garmin um Mm -hmm. and i'm bad it's almost like my cgm like if i could i'd look at it every 10 steps in the middle of a run and be like all right what am i doing now you know right did those 10 steps speed me up or slow me down did those 10 steps speed me up or slow me down and i'm looking at it over and over again and i you know it's funny you say that though too because i've gone through i go through these like phases up and down of of caring and not caring about pace you know so there's been times in my life where i've been really focused on it and other times where you know, and I think diabetes drives this. I've just sort of needed a break from all the tracking. I'm like, yeah. I just want to go do my thing, you know, and I don't want to look at a number right now, That's diabetes or otherwise. And, and I think as you get more into your running career too, you might notice there's times in your life where you abandon some of those tools and other times where you need it. Yeah. What, um, what kind of shoes do you run in? Uh, we could do a whole podcast on what I'm about to tell you, but <laughs> I, I run in the Vibram five fingers, the barefoot shoes. Oh, born to run, baby. Born yeah. to run. That's yeah. right. I listened to that book on tape. I didn't read it. Actually, I listened to it on tape and I, I got into the craze. So what was um, that? 2000, that was like 2008, 2009. I was deep yep. in it too. I, so I was in college at the time and I also was doing the CrossFit and you know, this was long before I was diagnosed, but mm-hmm. yeah, I was really into the, the barefoot, barefoot movement. And, you know, I didn't know anything about ultra running or you right. know, the tire humor or anything like that. But, um, I knew that, you know, Hey, you know, you can run barefoot and it can improve your form and improve your posture. Sure. And I got deep into it. And I, I've since then I'm, I'm farthest from barefoot running now. Cause I run in Hoka One One, which is like those, you know, big clonky, sometimes clown looking oh, shoes that I people hate that. on. Yeah, but, no, uh, my I have a good uh, distance runner that lives in um, Albuquerque that wears those, and she loves them. So, oh yeah, they're so they're they, they're really they're, big right now, and they're so comfortable. Uh, and so it couldn't be opposite you, of you running. Still in five run fingers. on the balls of your feet though, like like the we do in barefoot shoes, or does it change your gait as well? No, so it's stayed consistent. Um, and in fact, the only thing it has helped me with is I feel like it's actually helped me with turnover a little bit, just because oh. for me, I have one flat foot. And one completely arched foot. And so depending on how I'm running that day, sometimes my gait would be thrown off by that. And I, yeah. since I've been running in Hoka's, I just feel 
I feel my turnover and my cadence is a lot more consistent. Um, and I think my recovery for my feet is a lot, a lot faster. So I know like I, I used to do, you know, mile repeats in college barefoot. Um, I didn't even, I didn't even use five fingers at the time. I would just be straight barefoot and I would run on the grass on the inside of the track. Um, wow. And you were dedicated. Yeah. And, and so, and, and then my recovery would be, I think a little slower because of it. Um, and I'm faster now than I was then. Um, Interesting. and part of that is because diabetes helped me lose like 70 pounds this past year, but Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, that well, offline we could talk to you all about that story. That one's a long one, but uh that's Sounds essentially like- that's essentially how much weight I lost. And so that helped me get a little faster. But oh yeah. Yeah. If you Absolutely. I would always recommend people try hookahs because you know, you can try them for 30 days, trash them, and if you hate them, you can just take them back. Um, I didn't know that. That's but, really um, cool. Yeah, if you ever want to try a new shoe, I, the Hoka Clifton's are amazing. Um and even though I agree with you, like there's a lot of benefits to the barefoot running, but mm-hmm. sometimes you could pop on those things and you could stay on the balls of your feet um, and you could have a great strike and continue to run with great form in those as well. Interesting. Okay. That, this is a great tip. I mean, yeah. I've been a barefoot runner wearing the Vibrams for, let's see, seven, eight years now. Wow. Um, so yeah. And I, I've never worn anything else. Um, but, uh, I, I, now you're being the second person that's told me how great these shoes are. I'm sort of interested. So, yeah, I mean, cool. it, it's, it's funny how the community's changed. Cause I know the running community back then went a lot into minimalistic, you know, and then right. now it's, it's, it's kind of evolving away from that. And now you start it's to see the opposite way. Yeah, yeah. all the brands and all the shoes, you know, even if you saw like the Nike sub two project, those shoes are even thicker than you would think of a normal track shoe for sure. you know a sub two hour marathon would try. Um, um, I think they're like the Psyche that. Boom or just the Psyche, the Nike Zoom or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, yeah, um, yeah. Funny, I know stuff just it goes full circle. We'll we'll all be barefoot <laughs> three years from now again. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just one big marketing campaign to make us keep buying it shoes. Is. I know. <laughs> uh, so we like to try it, you know. Whatever, we're the ones that pick it up with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So that takes us to the the last few questions I have, and then I've already sure. taken a, a good amount of your time, and I'll let you have the rest of your Sunday. But no um, so this will be kind of our quick, random, awkward questions at the end, and it'll help close us out a little bit. But uh, great. So the first one: real sugar or artificial sweetener? Real sugar. Oh yeah. Okay. I have no <laughs> hesitation at all. I like that. No bolus or go running after or do something. Get the real stuff yes. for sure. Um. Okay. So favorite running motivation platform, like you're, it's a, okay. So this is perfect for you because you're in Oregon. So it's like raining, gloomy or cold and you need motivated to go run. What platform like on the internet or books do you use to like motivate you to get out there? Oh, I don't need the books or the internet. I just know what the inside of my couch looks like (laughs) if an unhappy dog decides to tear it up because she didn't get to go running. And that is all the motivation I need. Truly, like get yeah. a dog that needs to run who That's will awesome. destroy your house otherwise. That's and like the best blood sugar control <laughs> recommendation I think we've had for anyone. Get a dog that needs to run and you'll have to run yes. and it'll help you manage your blood sugars. It will. Truly. Truly, yeah. truly. Your insulin sensitivity is going down the moment you pick up that little guy. That's <laughs> exactly. awesome. Um, okay. The, so favorite food overall? Favorite food overall? Yeah, I'm talking. Like you can eat anything. I love eggs, man. I, like if I eggs? was stuck on a desert island, I'd take eggs in a frying pan. I, I just I didn't see that. I didn't see that answer going that way. <laughs> They're perfect. Yeah, it's perfect food. But if my favorite like indulgence is, um, and Portland's got so many places you could get this. My favorite indulgence is macaroni and cheese, like oh. old fashioned baked with like the cheese t- just falling off of it. Like, yeah dig in. So, so well, that takes me to my next question, which is favorite food you would eat a huge portion of if you did not have diabetes. Th- right there. Mac and cheese. Just like I would go to all the mac and cheese carts all over Portland and try each and every one. I would just awesome. repeat. <laughs> that's what I'm doing the day I get cured. Yeah. Oh, it's coming. <laughs> I think we're like six years out. We can do this. I know. I know. They've only um, been telling me that since, you know, since 25 you, years, yeah. but that's fine. <laughs> Hey, the horizon is, you know, always a great place to keep your eyes. So, um, so something you wish everyone knew about diabetes and this kind of alludes and there ties back into what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation. So I wish everyone knew that 
that they can do this. Like no one should have to live with diabetes thinking that living with diabetes means being hospitalized or dying early or getting a foot amputated. That's, that is not what living with diabetes has to mean. Yeah. You have, so on your blog and for anyone, any of the listeners, you know, who, you know, want to learn more about Alexis, go to her blog. It's awesome. Um, um, and so one of your posts on there, actually, I think it's at the end of your bio says, well, controlled diabetes is the leading cause of nothing. Um, and I hadn't seen that before. I don't know if you stole it, but I'm going to steal it from you for sure. Um, steal away. Cause yeah. I like that. It's that's incredible. Um, I have to give credit to the people who, who started that it's the behavioral diabetes Institute, which is yeah. an amazing organization. And, but they also, they say to freely use that phrase because it's not proprietary. They want to spread that message. Ooh, it's officially mine. They're going to regret Go saying that no, no. <laughs> it's, it's it. just so Use perfect, it. you know, cause it ties it in is. all the, the anxiety and fear. I think that people associate yeah. with diabetes and a lot of the confusion around it. So, um, cause people, you know, I'm in the army, so I'm like one in a million, you know, right. soldiers that has type one diabetes. And, you know, so I walk around all day and I kind of feel that awkwardness of being like the only sure. person that has it, you know, and everyone knows and they'll ask me funny questions. Um, and I've never been able to use that quote cause I didn't know it. Um, but now I do, um, Please, and I'm going to start shooting that at them. You know what I mean? Cause I'm like, I can do anything you can. I just have to do everything that your pancreas does with my brain, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, it's, it's true. We have it in us to, to do this. We just need, you know, the, we just need to believe that we can and, and find a way to do it. I've always said that if you, whatever you want to do with diabetes, find the person that did it. I, I guarantee you someone has tried to climb Everest with diabetes or travel the world, find those people and learn from them, follow their recipe. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things I really hope to continue to do with the diabetic running podcast and just to kind of connect the dots for a lot of people that yeah. like me, I think, you know, for the first, you know, six months felt super alone. So, um, yeah. next yeah. one is, so what's your advice for someone you kind of actually just talked about it, but if you want to elaborate advice for someone who is a runner and just got diagnosed or, was diagnosed 25 years ago and wants to start running tomorrow morning, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I would say rely on, there's a huge community out there of people with diabetes that are running. Go and look at those warriors who've gone before you and seen some of their recipes and what's worked for them and what hasn't worked for them. And you have to know, you have to go into running with diabetes with the open mindset of trial and error of understanding that you, you are going to have to cut short a training run because you're too low. You, you're going to have a race that you finish and your blood sugar is 400 and you can't understand why that happened. The strength in, in living with diabetes isn't about taking injections or poking yourself. We can all do that if we have to. Being strong with diabetes means getting up the next day and doing it again. That's what's so hard about this disease. Yeah. And so it's important for people embarking on a running um, career or starting one or, or dealing with diabetes now on top of it is that you, you have to go into this with, um, with the, the attitude of trying and not always thinking that it's going to work every time. And that's really hard. That's like right into the core of human resilience and our abilities to bounce back from things or not. And you have to develop that, um, that resilience skill with diabetes and not let it, it get you down. Wow. Yeah, that was perfect. Thank you so much. Um, so before we end here, where can, um, listeners follow you or, where, you know, where can they keep updated with what Alexis is up to with her running? Yeah. Um, so I don't blog as, so my blog is I run on insulin.com mm -hmm. and I have a whole six years worth of posts up there from running to being pregnant with diabetes to all the things in between. Um, I don't update it too regularly anymore since my life has changed significantly, but, um, yeah. I, I certainly had six good years of blogging on there and I do occasionally still post, um, you know, from, from the, from toddlerville over here where I live. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you can find me at, um, I run on insulin.com or on Twitter at run on insulin. Mm -hmm. Um, also, um, on some of the other social media platforms under my name, Alexis Hotman. So we can be friends. I do post about diabetes here and there. I'm still a huge advocate in the diabetes community and my local diabetes organizations. So those are some places that you can find me. Yeah. That's awesome. Alexis, I appreciate your time on a Sunday and thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, it's my pleasure, John. And thank you for what you're doing for the diabetes community. It's really important that we hear inspirational voices, um, both of successes and failures, you know, things that worked and didn't so that we know that it's not just us going through this and we can find that strength, like I was talking about, to get up the next day and do it again. So 
thank you for your service to this community. Yeah, of course. All right, everybody, that completes my interview with Alexis. Uh, Once again, thank you for listening to the Diabetic Running Podcast, and I hope you're getting a lot out of these episodes and applying it to your training and going out there and setting new PRs, whether you're just running around the block and, you know, trying to get to that next stop sign or you're running a marathon or an ultra marathon. I think that these episodes can continue to be good content for you. And please, um, if you feel like it's good content or if you feel like there's anything else the show is missing, reach out to me. I'm on the Diabetic Running Podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the Diabetic Running Podcast. Or you can contact me on Instagram, drop into my DMs at the Diabetic Running Podcast. Also, if anyone out there has any recommendations for someone who definitely needs to be on the show, um, please drop into one of my DMs on Facebook or Instagram, or you can send me an email through the diabeticrunningpodcast.com, and I'll do my best to have that person on the show. Um, once again, thanks for listening, and until next week. Mm-hmm.